0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. This is the last sermon in this expositional series through Hebrews, which has taken about 15 months to work through. It's kind of bittersweet, actually. Uh, I'm sure that I'll preach from Hebrews again over the course of my life, but how many with uh, really about 62 more books to cover... It'll be a while before I can do an exposition through this book again, and this has been a true blessing to me personally as I've had the opportunity to study it. I began this series by capturing the essence of Hebrews as it stands, written by an excellent commentator named William Lane, who wrote this. What, then, can we say about Hebrews today? Hebrews is a sermon that is rooted in real life. It addresses men and women alike, much like ourselves, who discover that they can be penetrated by circumstances over which they have no control. It is a sensitive response to the emotional fragileness that characterizes each one of us. It throbs with an awareness of struggle as it explores the dimensions of the cost of discipleship. Hebrews is a pastoral response to the sagging faith of frightened men and women at a time when the imperial city was striving to regain its composure after the devastation of a great fire. It conveys a word from God addressed to the harsh reality of life in an insecure world. So we come to the last verses of this great Christ-centered sermon, verses 18 through 25. Hear now God's word. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let us pray. Father, we are moved by these final words of this great epistle, this Christ centered sermon. Lord, I pray that we also would gain great encouragement as we read these, the words of this benediction, these blessed words, that we would be empowered ourselves to live for your will, to minister in whatever capacity you have called us to, for your glory. Empower your people gathered here today in Jesus' name. Amen. In the midst of these great verses are two of the most meaningful verses in the whole New Testament. They are known as a benediction, verse 20 and verse 21. Benediction literally from the Latin means a beautiful word or a good speaking, benedictus. Really just means a blessing that is pronounced over people an expression of kindness and love, a solemn blessing. Uh, We can see benedictions in the scriptures. In fact, uh, you remember a blessing that was given or stolen as Jacob was supposed to give his blessing, or uh, excuse me, Isaac was supposed to give his blessing to his son Esau, and Jacob snuck in and got it. So we understand the blessing to be more than just simply something we would speak to one another. It's a pronouncement based on the promises of God towards someone. And when the apostles do this, or the prophets in the Old Testament, it has all the more gravity for those who receive that blessing. In fact, the first benediction we know of in the Bible comes in Numbers chapter 6, where it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So God promises with the pronunciation that Aaron gives that there will be special blessing for his people. There are several benedictions in the New Testament, and we'll consider some of them in a moment. But for now, we come to some powerful words in the midst of concluding words of just a great great Christ-centered sermon. In concluding this great exhortation called Hebrews, we are given clarity and encouragement as to how we will be able to do God's will. It's one thing for me to get up week after week and tell you how it is we ought to act and what we ought to be about doing. It's another thing to receive a blessing from God to do it. And that's what we have here for us in Hebrews 18 through 25, in particular verse 20 and verse 21. Now let's look at the passage in totality. First you see in verse 18 and 19, a very personal appeal for prayer. Look at verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. So we have this appeal, and remember the context just before, verse 7 through 17, uh, includes how it is that the sheep and the shepherd should act, uh, remembering and obeying leaders. And now as leaders, as a leader leader, was part of a greater leadership community known as the apostolic community, the author here says, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Clearly there was trial going on in the life of the author. Uh, he wanted to get back to see the people he was sending this letter to origi- uh, initially, but was unable for some reason. It was asking for prayer. And what the leader did is surmise that we have a clear conscience. That is, we have confessed our sins. We have kept our... S- Our sins opened before the Lord and sought his forgiveness. We've desired to act in good motivation and do things right according to his word. Act honorably. So please pray for us. And I would suggest to you that there is a wonderful uh, lesson for us just in this simple verse. First of all, do you, brothers and sisters, pray for your leaders? Do you pray for me? Do you pray for Nathan, for the elders, for the deacons of our church, for other leaders in the Christian church? Do you pray for them? For the leaders nationally, all leaders that God would place over you, do you pray for them? I find oftentimes when leaders frustrate you, whether it be me or some politician or some other person, that if we find ourselves in the discipline of prayer for them, then our attitude and our demeanor towards them changes. Now, I'm not saying we're going to agree with everything a leader says, but we recognize God has ordained that person for that position, and as we discipline ourselves to pray for them... A critical spirit has less chance to take hold and really destroy us. Do you pray for your leaders? The text gives helpful guidance regarding leaders and prayer support for them. I won't read too much into it, but notice what the leaders say in asking for prayer. They say our conscience is clear and we are desiring to do what is honorable. So the role of the the church, the people, is to lift up their leaders in prayer. The role of the leadership is to keep their sins open before the Lord to have a clear conscience. There's only one way to have a clear conscience, and that is to have your conscience cleansed by the blood of Christ, which it says in Hebrews 9, as we studied so many weeks ago. So a cleansed conscience begins with salvation by the blood of Christ covering our sins, but a clear conscience is only maintained when we're constantly confessing our sins before the Lord. So leadership cannot hide sin. Uh, Leadership must confess its sin before the Lord, personally and corporately. And so the leaders here in their personal struggle to get back to see the people that they're writing to, are saying our conscience is clear. We've, we, it's not a sin issue that's keeping us from seeing you. And furthermore, we know that our motivation by mutual accountability in the apostolic community is to do what's right, to act honorably, and honor is defined by, by God. And so we're keeping our conscience clear and we're trying to act honorably. Pray for us. Pray for us. I urge you the more earnestly to do this. In order that I may be restored to you the sooner, the author desperately wants to come back and see these people. So we have for us this appeal for prayer that leads into some encouraging words, an encouraging blessing about ministry verse 20 and verse 21 it's a blessing in wonderful wording but it also has a very practical application that I hope encourages you this day in whatever it is that God has called you to do now you'll notice that I purposely interchange doing God's will with the idea of doing ministry I think they're the same God's will is ministering for him in his glory and that involves everything you do brothers and sisters when I talk about ministry I don't just mean what you do for the church I mean what you're doing in your homes with your children between husband and wife between uh, you and people God has placed you in relationship with in this world. A ministry is doing God's will. It's your obedience to God as ministry. Seeking Him is ministry. So I will often use um, ministry and doing God's will synonymously because I believe they are the same. And we have some encouraging words about ministry in this light in verse 20 and verse 21. And I would like to suggest to you that there are three encouraging truths that come from this powerful benediction. First, we learn that our lives and ministry are part of an eternal plan. It goes way back. Secondly, we learn from these two verses, he, that is the Lord, will give us all we need to do his will through his son, Christ. Thirdly, we will note that our lives and our ministry are for the glory of Christ. Let's consider these each. First, in verse 20, we see that our lives and our ministry are part of an eternal plan. Verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So the basis for our empowerment in ministry and doing God's will comes here in verse 20. Notice it phrase by phrase. What a powerful, powerful package of doctrine we have here in verse 20. First, God is called the God of peace. This is a common Old Testament designation for God, and it certainly illustrates God in one of his chief works of peace. I think of all the ways in which he works peace. But most simply, he brings peace between you and him through his son. He's the God of peace. You were at war with him before his son interceded for you by his own blood. And by sending his son, agreeing to send his son, He is the God of peace because he is breaking down now the wall of division between us and him. We are no longer at war with God, but we are now his sons and his daughters. And make no mistake, we were at war with God before Christ, warring against him, but Christ in his blood subdues us, and the God of peace truly earns this name by this great action of reconciliation between himself and us. Now, from that basic relationship flows everything else as I've said to you before, the reason why we have the passing of the peace, where we do in the liturgy, is because it's after we pronounce who God is, what he has done, how he has saved us. Now we are at peace with him, so now we can be at peace with each other and we pass peace. We cannot be at peace with each other, truly, if we're not at peace with God. So the God of peace is a simple designation for God the Father that illustrates what he has done to allow for there to be peace. You know. I hope you pray for peace on earth, and obviously with all the wars in our country embroiled in several different fronts, recognize that ultimately, ultimately, war will not cease until men and women stop being at war with God first. That is the most important ceasefire that needs to happen, and it only happens by the sovereign hand of God. Our lives and our ministry are part of God's eternal plan. We see this for sure. The God of peace working. Also look at the next phrase. Brought back again from the dead our Lord Jesus. This reference of to resurrection power. That same power that works in you now that raised Christ from the dead. So the God of peace who brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus. This reference to the resurrection is the only explicit one in the book of Hebrews. Remember, most of Hebrews is about Christ as the sacrifice, the one who fulfills all that has been foretold of. And now in these last verses, is a rem- there is a reminder here that the ultimate authentic- uh, authentication of Christ's work and who he is is as God raises him from the dead, accepts his sacrifice, and takes him to his own right hand. In the reference here, the great shepherd of the sheep, Christ, the great shepherd, the one who watches over and nurtures his people. The sheep are owned by the shepherd, the God of peace who brought back the Lord Jesus. Who is the Lord Jesus? The great shepherd of the sheep. And how is this all done? By the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, I'll bet if you have been a believer for any amount of time, the first three phrases, the God of peace brought back again from the dead, the Lord Jesus, and the great shepherd of the sheep all resonate with you. But how many of you have just read over this next phrase by the blood of the eternal covenant and not thought of it much further? You see blood and you know right away that must mean the blood of Christ. And you move on in this benediction. Or you hear Pastor Nathan or myself and uh, Mike Hirschberger use it as his first first benediction ever pronounced as a minister. It was the benediction I pronounced first when I became a minister in 1998 in September. The first benediction ever pronounced. How many times we've read over it and not thought much of what it means by the blood of the eternal covenant. What is the blood of the eternal covenant? For this forms the basis for the rest of the benediction. It's by the blood of the eternal covenant that God does these things. For us and in us. Well, very simply, and we could spend a lot of time on this subject. But very simply, this is a reference to an agreement that was made in eternity past. Between the Father, the Son, and the and the Holy Spirit. We have some inclination towards this or some view of this in Ephesians 1. Here, Ephesians 1, 4 through 11, as it refers to something that happened in eternity past. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. So God the Father chooses some in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So it's not just that he'd save us, but that he would make us holy and blameless before him in love. In verse 5 of Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The why is always a question. Why? Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. According to his purpose. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Beloved being Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, that is Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is one of the most vivid passages, one of the most undeniable passages about divine and sovereign election, which is the basis for our salvation. It's nothing less than the gospel. Good news. It's not good news if it's left up to us. It's good news because it's totally of divine initiative. In fact, there's nowhere here where it says he looked ahead to see what man would do. Thankfully, he didn't do that because he wouldn't have picked anyone on that basis. Instead, twice it says he actively predestined, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. It's not a little matter. It's the essence of the gospel. It's what we must proclaim, must teach, must preach. And it's wonderfully addressed in the book of Acts when the church is going forward. In Acts uh, chapter 13, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The eternal covenant is the time when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit met in council and chose to save a people for himself for his own glory. It refers to election, it refers to God's sovereign choice to save sinners for his glory. The blood of the eternal covenant refers to the payment necessary to make that actual, to make it happen. It's not just that he chose, something had to happen. Payment had to be made, blood was paid. Blood of God himself, innocent. Our lives and ministry are part of an eternal plan which is rooted in the eternal covenant of redemption, the blood of the eternal covenant. Uh, This is why it's important and why I hope that this is encouraging to you. It's not just pie-in-the-sky theology. This has to do with every bit of your security and every bit of your encouragement in life. Uh, I have a friend who I will have the great opportunity to go and preach at his ordination service uh, in a few weeks, on a Sunday night. And this friend, is someone I've known since I was 17, since I started when I went to college, and we've known each other for a long time, although we only talk periodically, if he were here today, we would immediately strike up our relationship where it left off. Maybe you have someone in your life like that. And as much as I know a lot of you, I know him better having known him over the years. And you would see him, and it would be totally new to you, but to me, he'd be like this old friend that I've had and known, and I know a lot about him. And we would strike it, and you would say, wow, they're close, they're tight. That's because we go way, way back. Your relationship with God did not start when you acknowledged your sin and trusted Christ as Savior. That's an important moment. It's an important time. But you go way back further than that. You go way back with God. Maybe you're only coming to understand that, but it wasn't about what you did. It's not about that prayer prayer you prayed. It's about the eternal choice of sovereign God to glorify himself by bringing you a sinner to himself in eternity past. That's how far you go back with God for me that gives me much more purpose in the ministry God has called me to i've supplied for you a brief picture a summary of what we believe is true in our confessional statement about what the scripture teaches it's formally known as covenant theology as you may have heard basically it describes what the bible describes First, there's, this, there's basically two covenants, if you want to think of it very simply. Two covenants. One made between the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and one made between God and his people. It all comes from this decision on the part of the Trinity to save a people for himself. Everything flows out of that eternal covenant. The doctrines of grace, the covenant of grace, all flows from the choice of God to save a people for himself. That's what the chart illustrates. As you walk through the Bible, you'll see that in eternity past, the covenant of redemption is made. Out from this comes the plan of salvation, if you will, to send the Son to die for our sins. So the covenant of works that happens right immediately, this agreement that man should not eat of the tree, the fruit of the, uh, the, the, fruit of the tree, Uh, is also underneath the umbrella of grace because man fails. And when man fails, someone still has to complete the covenant of works. Who is it? Christ, perfectly. In fact, every one of the different moments in revelatory history, when God enters and says, this is how you interpret these events, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, all ultimately is answered in Christ, finally all covenants. The new covenant is not brand new. It's the fulfillment of all the prior covenants that have been revealed in scripture, starting with the covenant of commencement in Genesis 3.15 when there's a promise that someone will come to crush the head of the serpent, who is Satan. That's a picture of Christ coming. The covenant of preservation. Instead of wiping out man, God preserves Noah and his family because he promised to send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. So he preserves man based on his own promise, not because man deserves it. You'll notice the other part of the formula is man never deserves it. That's grace. There's never a moment where God looks at man and says, wow, they really earn my love. They deserve my love. Never. And the reason why is that it robs from God's glory. God's glory is shown when he is the just and the justifier. The covenant of promise to Abraham where we get... Real meat on the skeleton of redemption, if you will. And you see this promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. And not just be a nation, but to bless the nation so the Gentiles, members of the Gentile nations, also would be redeemed. This great promise through Abraham. And we also learn that the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent would come from Abraham's family. The covenant of law often taught as some kind of rigorous set of rules that we must follow and it's done away with. In fact, covenant of law is grace itself. God revealing his righteousness through the commandments. No one ever was saved by following them. Following them showed they were saved. Still the same today, under grace. The covenant of the kingdom. Particulars now come uh, to show us what the Savior would be like. In the covenant of the kingdom, the promise to David, where there would always be a king on his throne, of course, King Jesus. In all of it forecasted in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And the new covenant comes, and Christ himself fulfills all the covenantal requirements that come before for God's people so that we now, united to Christ, are pleasing in front of God because of what Christ has done and totally, perfectly fulfilling the covenant we can never keep. And so now we can obey him because the covenant requirements have been met in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the essence of the book of Hebrews. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He fulfills all of, this, all of this plan that God has put forth from the foundation of the world. So, simply put, our lives and our ministry are part of an eternal plan. They have great, great purpose. So if someone asks you why you are saved, you can say, if you'd like... I am saved because of the sovereign choice of God according to the good pleasure of his will when an eternity past, the God had met at the Inter-Trinitarian Council of Redemption where it was agreed that God the Son would die for those God the Father chose and God the Holy Spirit would apply the redemptive work of those people all for the praise of his glorious grace. That's why I'm saved. Or you could say, I'm saved by the blood. It means the same thing. I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb by the blood of the eternal covenant. Your life and the ministry God has called you to is part of an eternal plan for his glorious grace. Secondly, also notice, though, with regard to this great benediction, he will give us all that we need to do, all that we need to do his will through Christ. He promises not only to tell us how we ought to live and act, but he promises us to give, give us the empowerment to do it by his Holy Spirit. Equip you simply means to outfit you with what you need to do his will, to minister for him. Equip you with everything good, just exactly what you need. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He is calling us to do his bidding for his glory, and that's where we'll be most satisfied. With regard to this phrase, equip you with everything good, commentator Scott says, rectifying everything every disorder of their souls and completely fitting them for every part of his holy service. Matthew Henry says, a perfection of integrity, a clear mind, a, clear ha- a clean heart, lively affections, regular and renewed wills, and suitable strength for every good work to which they are called. That's what it means when God equips us. And as we have noted so often before, and I hope we never forget, yes, it's true, brothers and sisters, we're justified by faith. That God gives us. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. That's what we've been talking about. Wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But don't stop there. Your life doesn't stop at justification by grace. Your equipping, that is the process God is taking you through to make you able to do his will, is also an act of God's free grace. It's not that you're justified by works or by, by God's uh, Christ's work and his death on the cross, and now you go forth in your own power. No, rather, the grace continues. Sanctification, the process of being set apart for God's service. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, the same phrase whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This is part, the the, the necessary part of God's overall work as he crafts you and equips you and outfits you to do his will. Now, if you're miserable today or if you're struggling in your life, you're fighting, you're kicking against the goads is what's happening because he's working to sanctify you because he loves you and he won't let you rest until you submit to him. That's that human aspect of the, of the walk with our Savior. Uh, that's so true. You can't just say as you sit there in this oblivion that it's God's will to be that way or to be miserable. No, that's not, not the case. Now, you may go through hardships, but recognize that he is moving you to equip you, to outfit you, to do his will. And it's miserable if you fight against that process. It's where true joy lies when you walk with the process. I do not say happiness or ease, but joy. As we are outfitted by God, Equipped by God to do his will. Wonderful words of Paul written to the Philippian church whom he loved. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't misunderstand what is said. Oftentimes verse 12 is... is uh, Quoted in a vacuum, work out your own salvation. That means show your own salvation to be true with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His own good pleasure. He will give us all that we need to do His will through Christ. Also, Please note in verse 21, our lives and ministry are for the glory of Christ. Never lose sight of this important reality. Verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do as will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, how through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To whom be glory forever and ever, it's for the glory of Christ. The reason why we work or we strive or we minister is for Christ's glory. Yes, there's this general reality that we are to live our lives to glorify God. In 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the general reality of our lives and our chief end being to glorify God and to enjoy him. But there are other benedictions in the New Testament, as I referred to earlier. I want you to hear what they say and recognize this common theme about the glory of Christ. Jude 1, verse 25. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So to the Father, glory comes, and it's attained by the Son. Revelation 1, 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory to the Father and to the Son in these benedictions. Our ministry, our lives are for the glory of God. 1 Peter five ten and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And yet another benediction in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know why I think so many people are depressed in the church today? Because they're living for themselves. Try to do something for someone else besides yourself. Watch how striving after God's glory will change your whole demeanor. How much more fulfilling it is to do something that which is eternal rather than striving always for things that moth and rust destroy. Our lives and our ministries are for the glory of Christ. Assess whatever it is that you're going to do. What eternal significance does it have? Is it for the glory of Christ? Is it for God's dominion? Paul captured this And we have a great picture of it in the scriptures when he writes again to the Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Powerful words from the Apostle in a wonderful example for us. That we would live our lives and minister, seek after God's will, not for our own good, but for his glory. And the wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, as you seek his glory, your good will be had. That's where you will find real joy. Powerful benediction. In concluding words to this great epistle, verses 22 through 25. Notice these concluding, these last words that are penned. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, briefly, you may say briefly. Well, if you read Hebrews from beginning to end, it would take you a little over an hour. And you have to admit, all the possible doctrinal trails you could follow. Just that one chapter, chapter 11, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on. So it's brief in the sense, and it's reading. You can read it in one hour. I know for the TV generation, that's difficult for us to imagine, but sermons were commonly two, two and a half hours in a bygone day. And so this is a relatively brief book. It's shorter than Romans, it's shorter than 1 Corinthians. And so this brief exhortation, and what a great description of a sermon. Bear with my word of exhortation. And he calls a word of exhortation this whole book, 13 chapters. Bear with my word of exhortation. In other words, don't go away being offended, brothers and sisters. I know what I'm saying might strike at you. I know some of you thinking are going back to Judaism. I know some of you are ready to pitch it all. Don't be offended by what I say, but rather see what it is, an exhortation from God. Bear with my exhortation. Don't be offended, but be empowered to serve God. Apply the truths of this book. Now, if there had been any question whatsoever about the qualifications of this apostle, the judgment, or this, uh, this person who is commissioned by the apostles, if there's any question whatsoever, all is dispelled by verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. They're hanging out with Italians. So these are people that you could trust. They're sound judgment for sure. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. In all seriousness, you have uh, really the, the transient nature of the church and those who are in the apostolic community. When I say apostolic community, I mean the apostles and the particular elders that they appointed. They traveled often together, and they met other believers from all over the world. And they, at this time, were traveling with some brothers and some sisters who were from another part of, of the Roman Empire, and it was important for them to hear. People living close to Rome, in Italy even, were proclaiming the name of Christ even in the midst of the persecution everyone knew was going on close to Rome. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. That gave those persecuted believers there encouragement, no doubt, to know that those closest to Rome, closest to the persecution, also were in the faith. These concluding words are encouraging For sure. Thus ends the exposition of this magnificent book of the New Testament we call Hebrews. It's fitting that the concluding words of this book include the image of Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. I began the series with a quote from William Lane, and so I end it that way as well. The image of the shepherd leading the flock that follows him wherever he goes is appropriate to the theme of commitment to pilgrimage. Under the blood of the eternal covenant, we, the pilgrim people of God, are led by the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, whom God brought up from the dead. The prayer for the accomplishment of what is pleasing in God's sight through Jesus Christ finds only one appropriate response in the commitment of the church to the pilgrimage. Hebrews is a call to commitment. And I close with the words that are found in verse 25. Just... Six words, but powerful. Grace be with all of you. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful and overwhelmed by your gracious generosity to us in your Son. Lord, we have studied for these 15 months this letter written to our predecessors. And as equally important to us, we seek to live according to its truths, what it commands of us, what it bids us to do, how it points to Christ. I pray, Lord, that not a one of us would be the same after having considered the superiority of Jesus over all things, that our trust in him would be all the more bolstered so that we might live as lights in this world for you. We pray this in the name of Christ, our great shepherd. Amen.